The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Well, good morning. Welcome to chapel this morning. It is our pleasure to have Dr. Eric Watkins with us. He is the pastor of Harvest OPC Church just down the road here in San Marcos. He's actually served as an OPC minister since 2001. He's actively involved in church planting and missions. He's also a professor and an author and a surfer and a dad and a husband, and uh, he does it all. Um, He got his MDiv from Westminster Seminary, California in 2000. He got his THM from RTS in 2009 and his PhD from the Theological University in Compton in the Netherlands in 2016. He's celebrating his 26th anniversary this week, so congratulations, we're happy for you. Uh, They have four children, and we're delighted that you're here to open the word for us this morning. Morning, Very, very nice to see everyone. If you would please open up your Bibles to Mark 14. If you don't mind, let's stand together for reading God's Word. Mark 14, 1-9. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. As far as God's word is Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We believe you inspire it. We believe that you preserve it. And we believe that it is open up, read, and preached that you are pleased to bless the reading and preaching of your word. This morning, in the chapel setting, we ask that you might work Faith more and more in our hearts. Help us to see the hope of our calling in Christ. Help us to be good stewards of our time, our talent, and our treasure. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I gave away the title of this devotional, Time, Talent, and Treasure. And that's what I want to speak on, how we regard our stewardship of our time, our talent, our treasure. In a certain sense, all of us have those three things and one question with them. We have time. We have talent, and we have treasure, and the ever-present question before us is how we are going to use them. In Mark 14, we find a wonderful example of how best we might use our time, talent, and treasure. In Mark 14, those of you that are at or visiting Harvest know that I'm preaching through this, I'm pulling from the barrel. 
Uh, in Mark 14, Jesus now clearly is setting his face toward the cross. In many ways, his path is clear. His gaze is resolved. He has only recently predicted the destruction of the temple and effectively the end of the old order of things. That is to say, the old covenant ministry, including the temple, is about to come to a close. In many respects, the Gospel of Mark is a story of love, betrayal, and murder. And many of those things we now see culminating as we come to the end of the book. Particularly in Mark 14, it's now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This, for Israel, would be like Christmas and New Year's to us, a time of gathering, celebrating, and eating. People would come from the north, the south, the east, and the west to celebrate all that God had done. In many respects, it was a feast to look forward to, but it was also a feast that caused them to look back. Back to what God had done for the Israelites in saving them out of Egypt. Back to the way that God had entered history to dwell among his people, back to the fact that God had made a promise that he would be their God and they would be his people. It was, in many respects, the best of days, but as has been said, the worst of days. For as Israel gathers to celebrate, the chief priests and scribes gather to conspire. They are seeking a way to kill Jesus, the chief priests and the scribes of Israel, the religious elite, the wealthy, the influential powerful, but they have one obstacle. They fear the people. And so we're told in our text that they conspire to kill Jesus stealthily. They want to be sly about it. They fear a riot might break out among the people. They fear what the Romans would do were such a riot to ensue. The chief priests and scribes at this point love the earthly country that God has given them more than the God that gave it to them. They value their earthly possessions more than heavenly treasure, a constant contrast even on the lips of our Savior. So not during the feast, they say, lest there be an uproar from the people. It's at this point we begin to sense that the chief priests and scribes are kind of like the wolves of Isengard that have gathered. If you don't know what that means, salvation is not far from you. Here's a joke. Enter this woman. In many ways, the woman becomes a central figure of our text here in Mark 14, not the chief priests or the scribes, the disciples, or even the crowd. More is said about her than anyone else except for Jesus himself. It's important to remember that we are in Bethany now two days before the great feast. Mark gives details, often in a laser-like way, but also in a storytelling sort of way that helps you sense that in this house, in Bethany, the temperature is getting warm. They're at the house of Simon the leper, who probably named this as someone whom Jesus has healed earlier in his ministry. Jesus, as we so often find him here, is among the outcasts, those whom the world might likely reject, lepers. There is Jesus going with them, but reclining with them at table. Reclining. A wonderful posture. How many of us like to go home and take our feet off and have a favorite chair reclining, uh, the posture of an Israelite eating at table with friends, sitting on couches. If you were to go to a, a meal in this time, you'd likely be seated on couches, low-seated couches around an even lower-seated table, and there the food would be in the middle, and reclining uh, was very much a posture that you would see when people were eating. 
It's a wonderful portrait. Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, the God-man, reclining, his feet up, eating, drinking with his friends, those who loved him and whom he loved in return. It is a beautiful scene that becomes even more beautiful when this unnamed woman just seems to crash the party. She enters in unnamed. She is speechless in the narrative. In her hand is an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard. The vessel itself is quite expensive. The contents of the vessel are even more so. 300 denarii, as it's referred to later, is roughly a year's wage for most people in this day. Average middle-class person, it's a year's salary. She comes in with this flask and this nard. She breaks it and she pours it out over the head of Jesus without any explanation. No words are recorded, only her actions. It's as though she's on a mission, silent, stealthily resolved to accomplish the singular purpose for which she enters the room, enters the story, enters into redemptive history. Almost as though sent by God to accomplish something that she must do for the sake of Jesus. You'd be asking why. <clears throat> why is she here? What is she doing? Why has God put this on her heart, perhaps? We wonder this question, and others in the room wondered it as well. Why are you doing this? Could this not have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? False piety often has a loud voice. Mark tells us that they didn't simply question, but that they were indignant. They were upset about it. They were put out, ticked off, upset. And verse 8 records the crescendo of their response. They scolded her. Who likes being scolded? Everyone knows the feeling, and no one likes it. Everyone knows the feeling when someone disapproves of what you have done so strenuously that they will not let it go. Their words berate you. Their tone adds poison to what is already bitter. Almost as though they will not be satisfied until they know that you are broken, crushed under the weight of their disapproval. What their words say, their eyes say even louder. They scolded her. What was it that she had done that was so wrong? In their eyes, she wasted her time, her talent, and her treasure on Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson suggests that this is a middle-class woman, uh, this uh, flask of pure nard was likely her retirement saved up in material form. If she was a wealthy woman, it is something that she would have saved up for a rainy day or like a vacation, like the trip my wife and I are about to take for our 26th anniversary. Either way, this woman holds in her hand something that symbolizes her future. You might even say her life, and she pours it all out on Jesus. And this brings us, in many ways, to uh, the climax of the text, which is the gospel. In contrast to her unnamed critics, Jesus does not scold her. He is not indignant. He rather defends her, and he even applauds what she has done. People are often prone to misunderstand our intentions, to misunderstand our motives. But Jesus sees the heart. Jesus knows what she is doing. And ultimately, he sees the heart of God manifest and displayed in the actions of this unnamed woman. He says, and you can hear in a voice that almost sounds like a big brother protecting a little sister, leave her alone. It's protective. But it's also tender. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? 
She has done a beautiful thing, literally in the Greek, a good work. What they see as a waste, Jesus sees as beautiful. What they see as being thrown away and squandered, Jesus exalts as fitting and proper. Why do you waste your time, talent, and treasure? They say, look what could have been done with them instead, they say. But Jesus goes on to rebuke even their misplaced piety. He begins to reference the poor. You will always have the poor with me, but you will not always have me. You will always have the poor. The poor will always be there. Since we moved back to San Diego a year and a half ago, I'm pretty sure that not a day has gone by that we have not seen homeless people. There's a dog park behind our house. Uh, they frequent our dog park quite a bit. My son takes great interest in this. and keeps telling him that he can't bring them all home. They're always around us. Jesus' time, however, was at hand, and he will not be with them forever. Soon the curtain is about to close upon his earthly life. His death is imminent. Whether this woman truly understood it or not, she seems somehow to be involved in the very detail setting the stage for his departure. Notice the way it is described in verse 8, which is really a remarkable verse. You will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. How did she know that? Does he say it from the perspective of what he knew or from the perspective of what she might knew? This explains a lot, however. This particular type of perfume was often used in connection with a person's burial. But after death, she comes to anoint Jesus before his death. Somehow she seems to know that Jesus must die, what the chief priests and scribes are conspiring, what the disciples have failed to understand, that Jesus has said it repeatedly. This woman seems to not only know it, she seems to be acting upon it as though already preparing Him, as though already grieving as one would at a funeral. Perhaps this explains her speechless action, why she comes in stealthily, yet resolvedly. Perhaps already grieving, already preparing, not simply herself, but even Jesus for his ensuing departure. The cloud of opposition is gathering. The wolves of Isengard are sharpening their fame. Perhaps, like so many times in Scripture, what remains hidden to the wise and self-exalting, God has here again revealed to the simple heart of babes. The wisdom of God is often foolishness in the eyes of the world. So here we take a little step back, a little breather perhaps, and perhaps one that is needed. The woman who comes to Jesus alone, in a certain sense, is not alone. She has a companion. She has a sister of sorts, one that perhaps she herself has not even met, but we have if we've read the Gospel of Mark. Again, Mark's way of writing is laser-like and brief, but sometimes the details in the setting say something quite remarkable. In other words, this woman uh, has an analog that we met already in the Gospel of Mark the widow who brought her might. Another speechless woman who comes to God to pour it all out and sacrifice unto Him. Both of these women, the widow uh, before Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, and here, this woman, both women come unnamed and speechless into the story and leave the same way. However, it's not what they say, but what they do that the Spirit seems to emphasize. Each of them pours out their life, 
their future into the hands of God, the widow into the coffers of the temple, and this woman upon the head of Jesus, the new and everlasting temple who has come. Temple, as it stood in its ministry, its sacrifice, even its priesthood, are all about to come to a violent end. A new and better temple has come in Jesus Christ. A new and better sacrifice is about to be offered on the altar of God. A faithful high priest is about to once and for all make that sacrifice that will not simply atone, but satisfy for sins. And it will be accomplished in Jesus. This woman is not on some random, pointless mission, nor is she wasting her time, her talent, or her treasure. She has, as many suggest, been sent by God and the Spirit promised through Isaiah to anoint Jesus for not simply His death, but the Messianic mission that will proclaim good news to the poor. It is Jesus who will die. It is Jesus who will be like a lamb that will be slaughtered. Jesus will die. The author of life will be buried. Jesus will die, but He will live again. And this is the climax and the point of the story. The woman pours out her life upon the head of Jesus. Because somehow, at least seemingly in the providence of God, she seems to know that Jesus is about to lay down his life for her. It is the gospel of the kingdom. It is the great exchange, if you will. She pours out her earthly life upon the head of the one who has come to give her eternal life. She pours out her hope, her future, her dreams, as we all should, onto Jesus. And this is love. This is the life of the kingdom. This is a response of a heart that understands all that He is, all that He came to do, not all that He came to take, all that He came ultimately to give, and that sacrificially and wholeheartedly. In the Gospel, we who lose our life gain it. In the Gospel, we who give our life freely away in service to God get it back. Though we lose our life in this world, We find it in Jesus, and it can never be lost. True union with Jesus, true communion with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Beloved, this is life. This is true life. This woman's life is found in God, hidden in the story of the Gospel. Her sacrifice becomes the emblem, as Jesus said, of true service in the Kingdom. As long as the Gospel is preached to the end of the age, people are going to hear about this woman. This woman, like the widow in her might, are the summary of trusting God and trusting Him with all of our life. It is a story that is told not simply for her sake. It's a story that is told, beloved, for your sake. Because Jesus came to pour out His life not simply for this woman. He was anointed for His death for you. He came into this world and did not waste His time, His talent, or His treasure. He poured them out faithfully before the Father. He poured them out faithfully on your behalf. And so what does this mean then for us as we land the plane? Well, you, beloved, have three things. Time, talent, and treasure. Christians may not be the best at the things that they do. You may not be the fastest runner on the track. You may not be the best painter or carpenter. We might not be the best comparatively at what we do, but we have the best motivation of all to do what we do remarkably well. And if we do 
what we do with our time, talent, and treasure as though unto Jesus, as though pouring it out upon his head, as though sacrificially laying it upon the altar which is himself. You never waste it. You never waste it. The well said by the famous missionary that he's no fool who gives up in this life that which he cannot keep to gain in the world to come that which he cannot lose. And you, beloved, have a lot of time, a lot of talent, and a lot of treasure. And if you pour them out on Jesus, in His sight, it's a beautiful thing. And whether the world applauds or becomes indignant, matters very little. But in His sight, to do such things truly is to embody the life of the kingdom. Great God, we do thank You for Your kindness to us and Your Son. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to be good stewards of our time, our talent, and our treasure. The glory of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2022, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.